Welcome, Welcome to the East, to the East Dramacast. Dramacast. This program is brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Check out the awesome educational content at east.org, including our sister podcast, CareerCast. You can find East Minutes on our YouTube channel and follow all the latest news on Twitter at East underscore trauma. Now, on to the TraumaCast. Before we get started, I'd like to say thank you to Hemonetics for their generous and unrestricted grant for the Educational Resources Committee and TraumaCast. Uh, today, we want to talk about Thor economies and go beyond just the how-to and really get into some of the nitty-gritty about which patients should get Thor economies, the sticky situations we all get into where you're in a gray zone, you're on the line, and maybe some interesting cases that hopefully challenge you both. So my name is Jeremy Levin. I am an assistant professor at Indiana University Methodist Hospital in Indianapolis, Indiana. My name is Megan Quintana, and I am an assistant professor at George Washington University. My name is Adam Nelson. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Arizona in Tucson. My name is Ronnie Mubang, the Ronnie Mubang, and I am an assistant professor also here at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. All right, so to get started, I think a good overarching kind of question that'll lead us into probably some interesting cases is kind of what do we all consider the purpose of thoracotomy? I know we know the definitions and the numbers we're looking for, but in your minds, Adam and Ronnie, what do you consider the purpose of, an, of a thoracotomy? Yeah, I think, so I think a resuscitative thoracotomy does several things. One is you have a chance to relieve cardiac tamponade if there's a thoracic injury, you have a chance to temporize thoracic bleeding. You are doing open, open chest cardiac massage. And then with your cross clamp, you are stopping exsanguination if there's bleeding below the cross clamp. And then also having the opportunity to maximize cerebral and cardiac blood flow. And so I think, I think those are really the elements that you get from a thoracotomy. Now, I'm, I'm even going to take it one step further and just simpl simplify it and say, two main things, right? Blood flow to the heart and blood flow to the brain. And all those other things that Adam mentioned, absolutely, they definitely work, but those are the two main reasons why you do the thoracotomy in the first place. Do you think then in terms of the outcomes we want for a thoracotomy, we often talk about survival, but what are your thoughts on the discrepancy between neurologic survival and just the patient lives through it, but maybe has a poor neurological outcome? And how does that affect your decision to perform a thoracotomy? You know, I'll take it back to looking at the East guidelines on resuscitative thoracotomy by Mark Seaman and Peter Reed back in 2015, right? And then going back and looking at the WTA guidelines again on the same subject. So two things, by the way. So first of the first things, we know that there is no prospective randomized trial on resources thoracotomy, number one. Number two, most of the data is based on retrospective analysis. Number three, when you look at the survival for patients that present with either blunt versus penetrating, right, you see have overall survival versus those that came in with, and then looking at neurologic survival itself. 
neurologic survival was oftentimes based on the literature a lot less than the overall survival of the patient. And so when these patients show up, the first thing I think about is A, number one, is this guy a robust individual, right? Sometimes people have a physiologic age that is different from their chronological age, right? Oftentimes it's just me looking at the patient. Number two, do I think that they might have a decent neurological outcome based on one mechanism to location, right? Mechanism, is it blunt? Is it penetrating? Two, is it, number one, is it, uh, signs of life or no signs of life from that standpoint. And so my overall take is from a neurological aspect, which it should affect the way I make these decisions. The answer really is that it does not, you know, and, and that's just the truth about it. Because when we see these patients in the Bay and Adam, you can, you know, you can chime into this you know, I'm not really thinking about your neurological outcomes, right? I'm just thinking, is this patient going to survive this? Yes or no? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think the decision to do the thoracotomy is 100% based on giving that patient a chance to live, right? And hopefully to have a meaningful recovery. And, and there are times when meaningful survival is unlikely, but not impossible, right? And, and, but what you're doing is giving that patient a chance. And you have to ask yourself, especially in our business, you know, what is the price of life? And it's a, it's a very difficult question to answer. And yet we, you know, as, as Ronnie was saying, we make all of these judgments about it every day because it's complex and, you know, it involves potential years lost, likelihood of functional recovery, scarcity of resources, so it's, it's complicated, right? But in that moment, for me, the decision is based on, based on whether or not I'm giving that patient a chance to live. But all that said, you don't want to be bringing somebody back to a devastating neurologic injury either with no chance of functional recovery and then, you know, an enormous cost and burden on already health, uh, scarce healthcare resources. It can be really tricky. You know, when these patients come in, obviously those with devastating, you know, head injuries is a no-go for us, Right. Um, however, when they do come in and they don't have this neurologic, you know, deficiencies that we just talked about, and they do come in either with penetrating versus or blunt trauma, right? So our goal is, okay, like Adam said, get them to survival because we don't know exactly in those patients in the subgroups, which ones end up having a better neurological outcome. Yes, we do know that penetrating is better when you're doing EDTs and their outcomes are better. But even looking at all those patients that survived, not all of them had amazing neurological outcomes. We don't know that. It's still a gray zone. So why not treat everyone that same way and figure it out on the back end if they survive or not? So I think you kind of allude to something that uh, I'm curious in, which is how do you mitigate selection bias? Right, especially since all these studies are retrospective studies, you really only evaluate the patient that you did the thoracotomy on. But at some point, that's someone in the bay, they see the patient come in, they have whatever data they have, and they make a decision based off of an incomplete model, right? It's not perfect. So in y'all's practice, how do you mitigate that selection bias between patients and choosing you get a chance at life versus you don't? Because there's definitely some patients that we don't do thoracotomies on. Yep. And I think, yeah, sure. I mean, I think we do have guidelines, right? That there's, and that is the place to start. So, you know, um, 
penetrating injuries, thoracic injuries with uh, signs of life or with CPR, you know, under 15 minutes, um, you know, is a guideline. And then, you know, blunt arrests. And, and for me, I would prefer to have a witness blunt arrest is, is another time. And some people use under 10 minutes of CPR. So, I mean, there, there are certainly times where you can say that, that a thoracotomy is most likely futile. And, you know, if somebody comes in and they've been down for 30 minutes and you suspect a head injury, like that is, that is a patient that falls under a different pathway. And so, and so that's where I start, but, you know, as you've alluded to, there is definitely a bunch of gray areas. And, um, I, I think the other part of it is that the information that you have is not often not complete. Like sometimes you don't know how old they are. And sometimes you don't know, um, even what the mechanism was or, um, what their injuries are. And so I think that you really just have to do the best that you can and treat the patient according to, you know, best interests. And a lot of times that means giving them a chance. Yeah, from my standpoint, I rely on two things. Number one, the educational background that we have, right, going through the fellowship, reading all the textbooks, all the data out there. And number two, surgeons gestalt. Someone comes in and you have all that data and we are reactive beings, right? We see patients, we react to data in the trauma bay and we do something accordingly to that. And so when they show up, you can have a really frail guy that comes in and that lost pulses one minute before showing up into the trauma bay, right? And the ambulance, the pre-hospital EMS are quite confident it was a minute and you still don't do a torocardomy on this patient. Right, despite the book telling you for blonde is less than 15, 10 minutes, okay, and yet we still don't do that. And why is that? Because you know, based on a something that you know we don't talk about a lot, antidote. And I know everyone says antidote is not science. Jeremy has heard so many people say that here at Vanderbilt, but we still use antidote to drive some of our decision making. And so, but the beautiful thing about that is that you know, with the experience and some anecdotal data from some gray hair folks within the practice, you know, you get to tailor your practice whichever way you want. And even with all of that, sometimes we're still not perfect, you know, and maybe that's why we're having this discussion, you know, that it's okay that Adam opens up someone's chest when he lost pulses, you know, one minute or a minute, you know, two minutes, and I don't do that, you know? And so the answer to your question, Jeremy, is TBD. No one knows. So along those lines, and with that kind of in mind, going to some specific case scenarios, I'm curious what your experience and what your um, opinions are on some injuries. So specifically for head injury, if you have somebody that's um, sustained a penetrating injury to the abdomen and head, are there things that you specifically look for in the trauma bay that help you make that kind of first jump into cutting or not cutting? Blunt trauma, is there something in blunt trauma that would make you say, okay, this is a non-survivable head injury instead of, hey, this is a chance, let's give it a shot? You know, from my standpoint, if they show up and they've got brain matter exposed and they've got pupils fixed and dilated, right, from those standpoint, and even if they come in at the lost pulses, I'm still very, very hesitant to do a torocotomy on these patients. And it's not just about, you know, doing the torocotomy and getting them through the acute phase, you also got to think about the risk associated with torocotomies, right? 
to the emergency staff, to the rest of the hospital staff. Drew Nunn, who is an assistant professor at Wake Forest, uh, did an interesting paper looking at all the diseases transmitted during ED trichotomy during his fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania. And it's a real thing, right? HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and then not to think about just constant blood draws for those patients that, that or the, the, the personnel that get exposed to this. So the second thing is that if you come in blunt, which I'm already hesitant to doing blunt EDTs anyways, based on everything I've told you, and you've got signs of a devastating head injury, IA, exposed brain matter, B, severely depressed skull fracture, C, pupils are fixed and dilated, very, very low to do anything on you. Here at Vanderbilt, what we do is we have certain checkpoints because we believe that physiology is physiology no matter what, right? How many times have you guys heard that, oh, by the way, the patient lost pulses five minutes and by the time they get to you, they're in rigor mortis, right? Cold and clammy. So we argue that it doesn't matter if you lost pulses five minutes or lost pulses a minute, right? The same thing still can. We put an ultrasound probe on your heart right? If you've got a giant thing that we can relieve, like a tamponade or tension pneumothorax, we go ahead and take care of that. We put you EKG leads on, right? Just to see what your perfusing rhythm is. If it's an SVT versus narrow complex tachycardia versus wide complex tachycardia, that will make our decision also from that standpoint and also using an entitled CO2. Currently right now, we're looking at entitled CO2s and EDT outcomes so far. So stay tuned to that. You're up next, Adam. I mean, I agree with that. Oftentimes with, you know, these blunt arrests, they will come in with um, exposed brain matter and, you know, no, no other real clear sign of injury. And that is, you know, certainly not a time that, you know, I think a thoracotomy should be performed. In those situations, oftentimes, you know, where people have come in with blunt arrest that is, outside of that 10 minute mark, or it was not a witness to rest, we will often, you know, make sure the patient's airway is intact, uh, make sure that it's not a respiratory arrest. We can do finger thoracostomies, make sure there's no tension physiology, put a probe on the heart. And oftentimes, most of the time at that point, there will be, you know, cardiac standstill or asystole. And, you know, Kenji and Ava's paper uh, looking at, you know, point of care ultrasound there, there were no survivors in that situation. Uh, not to hospital, you know, survival or organ donation. So, I mean, that is certainly a futile case. And I will also say something, which I'm sure, Jeremy, you've heard this before, the AABB and CCs, right? So that's a blunt trauma algorithm that comes in. Someone shows up here with blunt trauma, the lost pulses that come to us, we're not sure about timing. There's certain things we do. AA, A for airway, right? A at the second, A for access, B for blood. And then the other B for blowholes, C for cardiac ultrasound. And the third, the second C is, you know, cardiac ultrasound and crack the chest open if you need to. So that's our algorithm right now uh, at VUMC. If you show with blunt trauma and you've lost pulses and we are not sure, then we proceed with that. And then we say, should we do the thoracotomy? Yes or not? And then everything comes else comes into play. I think we're all, you know, within this discussion, circling around the idea that time is a surrogate we use for physiology. And sometimes you, all you have is time. You have very little information. You have to make quick decisions, but it's the underlying physiology that matters, which is why sometimes you can have that patient that is maybe pulseless for a minute, 
but they're done. They're gone. And some patients, 15 minutes, and you go at the 15-minute mark, and you may get them back. In both of y'all's estimation moving forward, how do you think the role of physiology should play into these guidelines? We know that that uh, Kenji Naba paper, right? Great negative predictive value. Asystole, you're done. There's no role for thoracotomy. But for patients that had anything else, it wasn't great positive predictive value. It doesn't necessarily tell you who should get a thoracotomy. Yeah. So how do you see that physiologic data coming in and informing future guidelines? You know, I think from my standpoint, certain things that we talk about, right? Like, A, so how is the heart doing on the ultrasound? B, entitled CO2 itself. C, what is the actual rhythm of the heart itself on the EKG strip? All those things point to physiology. So if a patient shows up and I know that this patient had survived you know, for 10 minutes or so, right? And they come in and we do all those things, right? So what do we do here? We do all those things, right? We do the ultrasound probe, we check an entitled CO2, we check a respiratory rate, we check last and not the least of the EKG if there's any heart rate activity. And if any, none of those things are present, guess what? We call those patients, right? But if they come in and their entitled is more than 20, right? They've got some sort of cardiopericardial effusion that you can readily relieve with an EDT, or they've got a perfusing rhythm, aka let's say their heart rate is more than 20 or more than 40, right? And then they've got a respiratory rate that seems to be a little bit appropriate. And by the way, they have a narrow complex tachycardia, then that points us into doing the torocardium in them. So again, is this a perfect system? No, it has a system been validated. No, but based on an anecdotal experience here, I think it works. I, I think the trick is that oftentimes you don't have any physiologic data, right? Like they just roll in and, you know, they might not even have access. Um, you don't know how long they've been down. And it's really, you're doing the best that you can by putting the story together in the moment. The decision to do a thoracotomy is such a complicated decision, and yet you have a very, very little time to make that decision. And it's like I said before, you know, based on incomplete information that often as you, <laughs> when you go back, ends up being different, right, than what you were told. So I, I think that's, that really is the trick. I wish there was more physiologic data that you could use to make that decision. And I don't know if maybe, you know, in the future, pre-hospital, you know, telemetry could perhaps contribute to that in a little bit better way, you know, but but the way that things are paged out and um, decisions are made real time in the trauma bay is often does not unfortunately incorporate a lot of data, I think. Yeah, I thought occurs to me too, when we're doing all this, whatever workup you do in the bay, right, it's burning time. And in, in all of our minds, we have based on those, you know, East guidelines and WTA guidelines, we have certain time limits in our head, right? We're always keeping that clock going when we hear someone lost pulses. So how much time do you guys devote when you're in the bay to do any sort of workup? And do you have a limit when you're it good enough is good enough and we're going to either go or not go? Oh, that's a good one. You know, I will often, as I'm standing there in the, in the bay waiting for, you know, the trauma has been paged out and I'm waiting for them to arrive. I will often have a pathway that I think I'm going down and I will be preparing for that. If, if I think that, an arrest is likely or the patient has arrested, I will be preparing for that. You know, I will getting the tray out, the, you know, the Belmont in the room, make sure everybody has their PPE on and we will go into that mode. But 
sometimes you don't quite know. And so you just have to be prepared for it. You know, obviously in the moment, I find that I do not spend a lot of time making that decision. Once I have enough data about whether or not I will or will not proceed, I, I, I usually move pretty quickly. So I, I would say I don't spend a whole lot of time. Yeah, I would say from my standpoint, that's when the really the pre-hospital information yeah. is really powerful, right? Because if they say, hey, we've got this guy that's got sense of life, you know, and he his pulse is very tready, then I'm like, hmm, there's a possibility I'm going to do a toracotomy on this patient, right? If they say, oh, we've lost pulses and it's going to be, you know, more than 15 minutes before we get here, right, from, you know, penetrating trauma, it's like probably not going to do anything, right? If it's blonde and they're like, okay, it's 10 minutes, we're 10 minutes out and we're doing chest compressions, probably not. So I rely heavily on the pre-hospital data, but then what if that data is not available? Well, that's when I rely on what I see at the time, which is A, the patient. And what I mean by that is physiology, just looking at the patient overall, the protoplasm himself or herself, right? If they look like they're healthy or not, which sometimes, you know, Dr. Rick Miller, ex-division chief would claim, you know, what if it was him, who was a triathlete that shows up, right? Um, so the second thing is look, doing the ultrasound, which again, doesn't take that much, just one pericardial view to see what the heart is doing, put the EKG leads on, and it's less than a minute. Oftentimes, if we have no information and the patient just storms in there and the patient has no pulses, what we do is we take the second to listen to the pre-hospital EMS, which takes less than a, a minute or so, and make the decisions. But overall, I would say, it's not a three to five minute thing that you pontificate before you decide to go or not. Now, Ronnie, I, I hear, I've heard you say cardiac ultrasound quite frequently, and I really haven't heard much from Adam on that. So my question for you guys is how much do you rely on that at your centers and who is the person actually doing it? Is it emergency medicine or is it the surgical staff? And interestingly, lately we've we've kind of come up with this pseudo PEA, which I know in medical arrest is kind of spoken about a lot, but medical arrest and trauma arrest are very different things. And so when you put the probe on the heart, you might see motion, but the problem might be that you just have no cardiac output in the body due to hemorrhage or whatever else the injury is. And so what is the role if you have the ultrasound on the heart, but you're too far gone from a penetrating injury, say that is, has put you into hemorrhagic shock from which you can't recover. Everybody's seeing the motion of the heart on the ultrasound. Does that change your, your Bay attitude Do people, you know, is it hard to say stop if you see kind of a super well, picture? I mean, I'm glad you brought this question up because that's happened so many times, right? Sometimes you just can't see anything either on the cardiac ultrasound because of the devastating cardiac injury as well as a huge left hemothorax and you just can't see stuff, right? And in that case, well, too bad because you can't use the ultrasound to help guide part of your decision-making. So for us here at Vanderbilt, the ultrasound simply being done by either A, the first year fellow that's in our resuscitation or sometimes the R4, or sometimes the attending. But the goal is that, you know, we do it so many times that we get quite versatile at using the ultrasound. And B, if you do not have views on the ultrasound, again, that's something that we do not rely just on the ultrasound alone. We rely on everything else. And if we can't see it and we have a high suspicion, right, we still proceed with doing the toracotomy. What about you, Adam? Do you use the ultrasound at all? We do. Um, 
our ER providers tend to do our ultrasounds. And, you know, we talked about the setting where you find asystole and then that's sort of like an open closed case. But, you know, when you, I think, you know, if you're in the situation that you have, uh, you know, a pseudo PEA that you're, you're seeing cardiac motion that's not perfusing on, on the ultrasound, you have to take it in context of the overall situation. And so if you think there's otherwise an indication to do a thoracotomy, then you should proceed. And that really should be the fact that there is electrical activity should reinforce to you the fact that this may be a salvageable patient, right? Like they just need blood and their perfusion augmented and to stop exsanguinating. So how does all this talk translate to the older patient? Because I mean, classically the person are going in ED thoracotomy is, you know, a younger trauma patient, but the population is aging. Um, I think we're all seeing potential thoracotomy candidates that are older and older. How does age whether you glean chronologic age by looking at the patient or maybe physiologic age by certain things about the patient, like they have a BK or maybe they have a fistula on one side or something. How's all that stuff factor in? I think it's a really interesting element that, that plays into a decision and probably more and more is playing into decisions to perform thoracotomy. So one interesting paper that came out of our institution um, in 2018 from Dr. Joseph and Ree was a T-quip analysis that looked at you know, five-year survival trends um, and the factors that sort of influence survival after thoracotomy. Now, the primary outcome was in hospital survival, but, and they found things that you would expect, like, you know, um, penetrating injuries, signs of life, time of pre-hospital CPR being predictors of survival, but also that age turned out to be a very, very important predictor of survival. And so what we found was that <clears throat> there's a significant decline in survival after the age of 50, no one over the age of 60 survived with a blunt mechanism. And then over the age of 70, nobody survived regardless of mechanism. And so I think this obviously, you know, this plays into our physiology question as well. And so, it, you know, this obviously demonstrates that older patients have, you know, and it may not be all about age. It could be about frailty and just sort of this like idea of physiologic age, but that they have a poor physiologic reserve. And then a traumatic arrest becomes an injury to them, which is essentially unsurvivable. And, and I do incorporate this into my practice and I know my partners do as well. If somebody comes in that is like, I know they're 80 years old and they have sustained a traumatic arrest, I would probably say I would not perform a thoracotomy regardless of the mechanism. And uh, knowing that the likelihood of them surviving is essentially zero, but there's gonna be a lot of gray areas as with everything or you have an older patient, or you have a patient you perceive to be older. And we all know that our patients sometimes live hard and look a little older than you think they do, or than they actually are. Um, and so it's it's sometimes really hard to make that decision. And so I think there's some situations where you can incorporate this into your into your decision making. And there's other there's other situations where it's a factor, but isn't really something that you um, do or don't proceed with, if that makes sense. You know, we've had this, uh, Adam, we've had this debate on our trauma morning report so many times. Yeah. And we'll tell you that, you know, we've got some of our great here attendings who say, well, what if it was me, you know, who is a triathlete, <laughs> right? And, you know, an Olympic champion that shows up, you know, in the trauma bay, you're not going to open up their chest, you know? And so, you know, when it comes to age, obviously we know that physiologic age is superior over chronological age. And, Yes, we are well aware of those papers that have showed that. And to me, I got to tell you, one of the things that comes into play too is just looking at the patient, right? 
And yes, some of them look older than they are, and some of them look younger than they are, and just looking overall and seeing, you know, using all your data points in your head, which again is still very anecdotal, right? And from everything else you've experienced and seeing, do, do, do I think this patient is old? Do I think this patient is young? Do I think they can survive that? Because sometimes you don't even know the age of the patient, right? And you're just acting based on what you see in front of you at the time. So yes, if we do, again, rely on this pre-hospital information and say, okay, the guy is 70 years old, blunt arrest, okay, we're not going to do that. But when he shows up and you don't have an age, you don't know the age of the patient and you're trying to decide should you or should you not, and you look at the guy, I mean, there have been times you look and say, hmm, this guy looks a bit old and maybe I shouldn't do it. And then you find out later on that he was actually 55 years old. You know, and you're like, okay, should I have gone back and done it again? You know, so again, age is with quotation marks. Use it as a guidance, but that doesn't mean sometimes you can sway away from it depending on certain circumstances. Well, and I don't know if either of you guys deal with pediatric trauma very much, but is there a too young age in addition to being too old? I mean, I, I will tell you from our standpoint, we don't do PETs, EDTs that go to the children's hospital. The last one I did was actually two years ago when I was happened to be in the children's hospital with a, another PET surgeon, but it's a very different ball game when it comes to pediatric surgery. So um, from my standpoint, you know, we've had patients that showed up here in our trauma bay at age 16, right? And we've definitely had some pediatric patients start are 80 kg, right? And they are 15 or, you know, 14. I'm sure, Adam, you've seen that before. And so, and I know that multiple people have said, you know, every piece lecture, you know, kids are not little adults and so don't treat them as such. You know, we've heard that so many times too. Um, with all that being said, if they show up to our bay and we don't know the age and they look pretty robust from that standpoint, you know, they look like an adult, you know, all bets are off. Yeah. Adam, what do you think? So we, we do cover peach trauma here. Um, and fortunately I've not been in a situation where, you know, I have a very young child that is potentially in need of a thoracotomy. Most of my experience has been with, you know, as Ronnie's saying, you know, older, older children that have more of an adult like physiology, but you know, I'm not, I'm not sure if there is a, a an age that is too young. Um, I, I, I really don't know the answer to that. Do you do it, Megan or Jeremy? So no, and interestingly, I gave a grand rounds to the Children's National Hospital in DC recently about PD, really? PD thoracotomies. And their questions were, when should we do it? When do you say stop after resuscitation and that sort of thing? And, and really when I was looking into this, cause I, I don't have much experience with that. The survival rates are really abysmal. The wow. survival rates that are really greater than two to 3% are, um, uh, penetrating, isolated, penetrating thoracic trauma with witnessed loss of signs of life. So, but I think um, moving on to another kind of interesting population, what about the OB patient, the pregnant female? What do you guys think about thoracotomies in this group? I mean, it's, it's really interesting. We just had a, one of the OB professors come and do uh, trauma didactics with us where we got to have some really, really interesting conversations about pregnant trauma and what to do in the setting of maternal arrest, right? And one, a couple of the highlights that came up were, number one, in the case where mother arrests, you have about four minutes to get the baby out. 
And it's really for two reasons. One is by getting the baby out, you're improving the ability to resuscitate mom. And, and then the other thing is hopefully you're getting an alive and neurologically intact baby. But after four minutes, your ability to get the baby out alive and intact approaches zero very quickly. And so really the moment mom arrests, you are starting and you're starting a thoracotomy, assuming you have an indication to do one, somebody is at the same time doing a C-section and getting that baby out very quickly, hopefully, you know, within a minute or two. And hopefully that's somebody from OB. <laughs> um, I, I'm fortunate enough, and Ronnie, probably you two are fortunate enough to work in a, a center where we have a really great collaboration with the OB and NICU teams who automatically get paged and assemble very quickly down in the trauma bay whenever there's a pregnant trauma. And, and But I again, I realize that resources may be very different and limited in different situations. I will tell you that, you know, from my experience here, you know, uh, resuscitative ciliotomies also for patients, you know, for uh, pregnant patients, you know, it's something that we actually did not too long ago. This happened in the trauma bay. And so Rick Miller also went ahead and talked about emergency uh, C-sections, right? We looked at our outcomes, looking at patients that showed up in the trauma bay and they had emergency C-sections and they looked at, you know, the survival of the patient, you know, um, post-emergency C-section because there was an antidote that it was not helpful and we should not do this for these patients. And they actually showed that 40% of those patients ended up surviving. You know, and this was based on a series of N equals 11 written by Rick Miller when he was here at Vanderbilt. So now resuscitative thoracotomy, um, also one of the things you do the emergency C-section is that you can restore over 20% of your blood volume back into the mom, right? So why, again, we're doing the you know, resuscitative thoracotomy, someone is doing the resuscitative C-section, which again is the same caveat as doing the same midline incision, right? Because sometimes, you know, you know, we have our OB there and they want to do the standard transverse incision. So you go be there and say, hey man, listen, let's go ahead and do a standard midline incision because you got to pack that abdomen too and everything else. The problem with doing those also in the trauma bay, you can imagine it gets quite hectic, right? I'm sure Adam knows this. Every time the OB gang rolls around, you know, they roll deep, right? They come in with 10 deep, right? And so that whole trauma bay just gets completely outnumbered with people. Yep. So, you know, personnel control becomes a huge issue in being able to manage everyone in that room. And it's also quite, you know, um, it's, 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 uh, it becomes quite uh, taxing for the whole group. Right, and some of those paid peep, some of those personnel have never seen an ED thoracotomy done before, and right, so you just have to be able to be a good team leader to coordinate if this happens and move everything forward. So, I, I and if I can say one more thing, I think along those lines and sort of plays into crowd control is that as long as mom's alive, you know, I think that if if mom isn't alive, the baby's not alive, right? Yes. But if mom is alive you know, the, the focus really should be on mom and resuscitating mom because, you know, the, the baby is not part of the primary and secondary survey. So you have all of these, this crowd here, um, but really, unless, you know, they don't take a big, they really don't take any role in the resuscitation of mom. And it's not until mom becomes stabilized that they are able to like assess the baby's well-being. So it's, it's really about mom in the beginning and you have to, they should know this, but like, 
as Ronnie's saying, it gets, it's, it's really crowded. And so you just, you have to help that um, guide your crowd control. I think the other thing that sort of came up in this, this lecture we had about OB stuff was this idea of placental abruption. And that after, after 20 weeks, it becomes a very real cause of maternal hemorrhage after a trauma that might not seem like it would cause a lethal hemorrhage. And so, you know, you have a mom who is 24 weeks pregnant and gets in a relatively minor car accident and then all of a sudden has hemorrhagic shock, chances are it's, you know, a, a placental abruption. And so I think one thing that you can do to help yourself in these situations, aside from left tilt and all the usual pregnancy trauma stuff is really illustrates a rule of full exposure and make sure that she's not having, you know, vaginal hemorrhage and, and complete hemorrhagic shock. When do you all let OB into the bay? Because like you said, Adam, they don't have a role in the primary and secondary, but to Ronnie's point, they do roll deep. So if they're in the bay, I, we've all been in this scenario where you lose the narrative and the room starts doing what the room wants to do. And if they start inserting themselves in a way that impedes your ability to, to assess and to resuscitate mom, when do you allow them in that process? I know my answer, but I'd be curious about yours. After mom is stabilized. I think once mom is doing, once I have convinced myself that mom is doing well, or I have done things to make her okay, I think then is the time for them to start to look at the baby. And I think that that, that whole element really plays into the idea that being the trauma leader is a cognitive task, right? You are standing, you are standing back and not doing your thinking. You, and part of that is looking at the room and seeing what other folks are doing. And if people are in, a, in the way or doing things they're not supposed to be doing, you have to put a stop to it. I, you're, you're completely right, Adam. Here, what we do is we do a primary, secondary, and then after that, that's when OB shows up, right? So they stay outside the bay, right? Sometimes they want to chime in, right? And you have to, you as a trauma team leader, have to be assertive and say, hey, listen, just let us finish what we're doing here. And then you can have added after that you know so because it's so important right oftentimes you'd see someone that doesn't really know the protocols here and storms into the bay while you're doing your resuscitation and it obstructs the flow and like jeremy says then the train starts moving a different direction and you have to just wheel that thing back in the right correction so from my standpoint um we run a pretty oiled machine here and uh they are not allowed to come in until we tell them to do that I uh, agree on all points. All right, now to, to switch gears a little bit, let's talk about clamshell thoracotomies. And specifically, when do you all do a clamshell? Are there any downsides doing a clamshell? And then let's say you are lucky enough to get to the point of patient survival. How do you close your clamshell? When should I do a clamshell? If someone comes in and we've got a transmediastinal injury and we have lost of pulses and I feel like I do not get adequate exposure from doing a left thoracotomy, then I go ahead and I clamshell those patients. We clamshell them just, and the most important reason is exposure, exposure, exposure. If I cannot fully see what I need to do, then I'm going to open them up completely, right? If I'm also worried about the right chest and I've done my finger thoracostomy and I'm worried that there's some pathology else going on, I'm going to clamshell the patient. Now, regarding closure, the most important aspect is just reapproximating all those rib spaces. Number one, I typically like to use bigger or vicros to reapproximate them. I like to leave three drains on each side, so two on board chest, so, you know, angled and one tunnel and then one in the mediastinum. And then also, you know, close your intercostal muscles, right? And then last but not least, staple. 
And uh, again, there's really no science to this, right? It's unfortunate that we zip through the, the, the sternum itself from that standpoint. Oftentimes it's really tricky to actually go ahead and put sutures in the sternum to reapproximate it. So you're just really hoping that you get those rib spaces together, the costal margins, and then the sternum is nicely tacked up from that standpoint and uh, take it from there. What do you do, Adam? I agree, Ronnie, like it's about exposure, right? So if I'm in the left chest and I can't see what I need to see, the next the next move is to, you know, get the Lushki knife and do a clamshell. One thing I have learned though, is a lot of attention is paid often on behalf of the ED providers to, to getting into the right chest. Well, you can just stick your finger underneath the sternum and look in the right chest. If there's blood there, you have an answer. And that makes it a lot easier to make a decision about whether or not you uh, are going to perceive the clamshell. As far as closure, I'm, I'm with you, Ronnie. Like I, I like big bicrolls around the ribs and um, just reapproximating and closing in layers with drains. Do you ever plate your sternum, Adam? <laughs> I have not. <laughs> not I have plated sternums, but not <laughs> after a clamshell. Got it. Perfect. Okay. And moving on to a little different uh, issue. Do you think that there's ever a time where do you opt to do thoracotomies ever because of educational value or is there anything you do after your thoracotomy for educational value if sadly enough the patient doesn't survive oh yeah so from our standpoint so this is the sequence that we do so the patient comes in you do your thoracotomy and while you're there and if you realize the diaphragm is bulging or the patient's got devastating injuries that you think are not amenable to your repair then you stop right and once you stop, you know, you have a clear discussion with the room. So everyone understands what's going on. You pronounce, you have your time of death after you've answered any objections and everyone's pretty much on the same page. And then, so what happens is that we take a brief moment to give a, a pause just for, you know, uh, to show respect. Some people do, some don't. It's still, you know, plus or minus depending on you. And after that, what we do is we take that opportunity to teach, right? Because oftentimes what happens is that, you know, no matter how many cadavers you've been to and, and, and practiced, right? Again, resuscitative thoracotomies are not things that get done you know, on a daily basis, right? These are not gallbladders, right? So the more you learn, the better it is for you. And so we take that time to show, okay, this is the heart, this is your inferior pulmonary vein, this is your ligament, this is your PA, this is how you cross climb your aorta, this is why you place the NG tube down so you can feel your esophagus, right? This is where, this is how you open up your pericardium, this is how you do a cardiac massage. So those moments are so precious not just for the trainee, but also to show the others in the room, because oftentimes we've got paramedics in the room, we've got EMS sometimes that stand, stand back to see what's going on, and nurses, and they're very curious. So by you doing that, it actually allows a good bonding relationship with your team. So I think it's very important to do that. You know, naturally, there are more trauma, there are many traumas, and you're jumping from one room to the next. That does not allow that to happen. But if you do have the opportunity to do that, I think it's vital. You know, I think those are really good points. And I, I find myself doing the same thing with, you know, patients that have passed going through the anatomy and looking at the injuries they have. It's super educational for me and everybody that gets to look. And that's, those are really golden opportunities for learning. But I think there is also a lot of educational value in performing the thoracotomy itself, right? We all know that, you know, as individuals and as a system, 
the more we do of something, the better we get at it, right? And so the residents need to know how to do a thoracotomy. The ER physicians need to know what to do, intubating the patient, getting access, you know, the right chest. And the trauma staff also needs to have all of that practice where they're getting the blood and they're getting the trays. We're making sure the right things are in the trays, troubleshooting the Belmont. Like that is all muscle memory and you can't be good at it unless you do it. And so my personal take is that if, if I am only doing thoracotomies, now let's be clear, like the reason to do a thoracotomy is to give a patient a chance to live. But if I am only doing thoracotomies on the patients that have the best chance of survival and decide not to do them in all of the gray areas, nobody is going to get good at it. And so how can you be ever be expected to save the patient that has, you know, that single stab wound to the heart with the high likelihood of survival or higher likelihood of survival, if you aren't doing more and taking opportunities to immerse everyone, the whole team and the educational experience of, of, of going through a thoracotomy? I mean, you, you make a really, that's an important question. And, you know, it's, it's a balance between education versus doing what's right for the patient because yeah. I have yeah. heard during my residency and I'm sure some of you guys have also heard the same thing that oh I did this thoracotomy for an educational experience for people right and so the futility was a hundred percent and they still did that right and so one of the things that we talk about here also and I hear Dr. Goldman Dig is saying this all the time is we need to maintain the patient's dignity even till the end. Yeah, and so, so from my standpoint, you know, yes, from an educational perspective is subpar, but the patient comes first no matter what. And so if I personally feel like the thoracotomy is not indicated, I will not do it um, just for educational component. Now, if I did do it and the patient did not survive, I will take the time to educate and that's why it's still a moving target, right? Some people have never seen a thoracotomy, right? In the past four or five years of the general surgery residency based on wherever they are. And some other places are like, wow, are you kidding me? I did, you know, 16 of them, right? And while I was in general surgery. And so it's, I don't know how to balance that. I agree hundred percent. It's tricky, right? And it is, it is a fine line that you have to walk. And I would never advocate doing a thoracotomy in, in something that I thought was futile, but we live in a world that is very gray, right? And there's not always a right answer. It is a complex, multifaceted decision that you have to make on the fly. And to say that educational value of doing one doesn't come into play, I mean, that, you know, it, it's part of it. To, uh, to go into further gray areas, um, organ salvage, uh, or economy as, I know, as a bridge to organ donation. So I will tell you this, okay, we've had, Jeremy, you've heard this before. We've had this choir so many times at our report, right? It's been indoctrinated in us here, Megan. Um, we do not do thoracotomies for organ salvage. Now, I know there are other institutions that probably do so, and some people say 20%, right, organ salvage, and that justifies it because people get all these organs and they get to live for fruitful years. That is not something that we do here at Vanderbilt. Um, that is something that is still an ongoing target. And uh, again, we still stand by the same matter that again, we gotta protect the patient's dignity and, uh, and do what's right for the patient. And we'll just see what the future holds, but that's where we stand right now. Yeah, we, so we do not do thoracotomies for the purpose of organ harvest either. Again, the, you know, the reason for thoracotomy is to give the patient a chance to live. But 
that said, you know, there's traditionally a lot of focus on mortality and survival as the outcome to measure after thoracotomy. And I think real, you know, the reality is that there's a lot of other outcomes that are just as important and, and survival to organ donation is one of them. And so like, for example, there's a study from USC where they took their approach to thoracotomy, which is really aggressive. You become impulseless, you get a thoracotomy. And they looked at organ donation as an outcome. And they found that, you know, while overall survival is, is really low, as you would expect, around 20% of patients survived to the ICU and about a quarter of those were potential organ donors. Now, not all of them donated for various reasons, but 20% were able to be, you know, evaluated for uh, donation. And if if you think of if you think of the downstream impact and costs of being able to harvest these additional organs, there's probably an enormous benefit to, to patients as a whole. And so, like for example, you have another patient who's been sitting in the ICU for 30 days, waiting for his or her liver around forty thousand dollars a day, and, and now you're able to potentially provide those organs. I think there's enormous benefit there. But to be clear, like that is again, not the reason that a thoracotomy is done. That is not the indication. It's the indication is to provide a chance to be alive. But along those lines about other sort of more like intangible outcomes, I think there may also be, and I've, I've had this experience a couple of times where I do a thoracotomy and I get them to the OR. It's clear they're not going to survive. I'm able to get them to the ICU, but the, the family is able to come and be with the patient while they're still alive. You know, I, and, and I, I've had the experience where the, that family has turned to me and thanked me for at least has been grateful be, to be able to spend time with that, with that family member before they had passed. Whereas the alternative would have just been, they died in the ER alone. And I, I don't really know how to parse that in terms of, you know, that's not really incorporated into my decision-making to perform a thoracotomy, but it, it does affect me at the end of the day, right? Like it, it is something that's there and I think is meaningful to people and, and something I have sort of thought a lot about personally. Now, Adam, you mentioned something quite important, you know, at, at the USC LA County. And so one of the things that we also talk about here is that, yes, you do the torticotomy with the best of intentions to save the patient. And sometimes that doesn't work. And so if you start thinking about organ donation, does that make your criteria for the thoracotomy less stringent? And so now then you start having certain areas that people do thoracotomies knowing fully well that the survival is dismal, but you know, you can get some sort of organ donation. So, you know, again, the whole top process comes into place. Patient comes first, patient comes first. And I completely agree with you, man. It's, you know, if you can get these organs, that's great, but it's such how it happens. It needs to be the right path which means you are looking out for the patient. Unfortunately, the outcome did not happen and the organ donation happened. Not saying that the patient came in and let's do this so we can get organs. Yeah, and then the other thing about having family show up before you pronounce them, you know, that's happened to us also so many times and I completely agree with you, but when you put the patient first and you're like, oh man, this is, a devastating injury. I don't think I can, you know, save them from that standpoint. There've been multiple times we leave the cross clamp on and get them back upstairs because you can't come off and have the family show up. And then we take the cross clamp and they die. And I think that those are the non-tangible measurements 
that we talk about when we do these things, right? Having the family present at the bedside to say thank you and kiss their loved one before they move to the other side, you know? So, so we're getting low on time, but this has been a really good discussion. We, we want to we wanna run some quick scenarios or really just generalities about some interesting cases. Um, but I do think it deserves to be mentioned about the potential harm to the proceduralist and how that factors into doing the thoracotomy because it's a higher than zero number. Yes, yeah. it is. So, so is your question, what is the potential harm? I guess I don't really have a question, more of just a statement. <laughs> <laughs> like it's something that we all we all take into account. Oh yeah, um, and it's not the largest bandwidth of our mental decision making when we're deciding for economy or not, but it certainly is there. Well, I mean, I will tell you this. Okay, I'm going to give you some anecdotal experiences here at Vanderbilt. Okay, we've got senior level faculty that have had needle stick injuries during thoracotomies, had their fingers sliced during thoracotomies, right? We've got junior residents that have had needle sticks during thoracotomies and had their fingers sliced or so. Then we've also had nurses that are involved in it with pre-hospital EMSs. This whole thing, Drew Nunn really took a good job looking at all of this, you know, diseases associated with thoracotomies and with the HIV, hepatitis C, and the hepatitis B, and these are not tangible numbers, right? One in 200,000 or so for patients with HIV. And so not only that, all the costs associated with the thoracotomies because it's not cheap, right? And number three is, you know, those that get exposed and the needle sticks, what they don't tell you is that they go to occupational health and they get their blood drawn every week, right, for the next couple of months to make sure that, again, that they are free from certain diseases. And then, most importantly, ladies and gentlemen, the traumatizing aspect of the thoracotomy. How many times have you seen the medical student in the back? You're doing a thoracotomy and you hear a stump, right? They fall and they pass out because they've never seen or experienced anything like that. Or the young nurse who is just two months into her trauma nursing residency freaking out and she passes out. So all these things are things that, again, should not be considered immediately, but should be definitely be in your radar in that orbit when you decide to do all those things because you need to regulate them appropriately. So I, I was thinking about this as well, and I found a paper that looked at it was a survey of a you know a bunch of different places that were trauma centers, and they found an overall rate of about between one and two percent exposure per participant during a thoracotomy, and so. Overall, it's a very real exposure rate, but it's low. Um, but the thing that was interesting was that the overall rate of PPE use was just over half. That's, I mean, I think that that you have to talk about that. And so, you know, part of our trauma timeout is if, you know, it's a red coming in and it, making sure that everybody in the room has an impervious gown, safety goggles. And for me and all my trainees, we we double glove, we put on, you know, a pair of exam gloves with sterile gloves on top. And I think that that really, you can't really say enough about making sure that everybody is protected. And if there, and then the other part is if there is an injury making sure that they do the right things, go into occupational health and, and get prophylaxis if, if it's indicated, stuff like that. One of the also the important things is also the pre-brief and the debrief and making sure that all aspects of the team all the members are comfortable enough to speak their mind 
right? Because sometimes you might have a student or you might have a junior resident that has a needle stick and they are so afraid or scared to, to you know, report what happened, right? So creating that umbrella of trust where you can actually talk about the patient, talk about opportunities of improvement, what went wrong, what went right, and taking it from there is huge. You know, there are all this data about our trauma patients, you know, how many trauma patients show up with either some sort of blood-borne infection, HIV, hepatitis C, they say 10 to 15%, depending on the data you look at. So this is a real thing that happens, you know? And so, Adam, I mean, I cannot overemphasize the whole PPE, man, and the goggles, cannot forget those goggles, yeah. right? Oftentimes people are just cavalier, right? And just show up and get it done. And then you get a splash in your eye, which guess what? You still have to go through the same exposure route, you know? Those are such great points. The, the debrief I'm a huge fan of to A, create a safe space for everyone involved to say, not only the process of what they think could do better, but just how are you doing? I mean, we give a moment for the patient, but also giving a moment for the staff involved, all the ancillary people, the nurse or the med students is super important. And then PPE, I mean, I'm sure to my residents, I'm a broken record, but I don't care how acute or how unstable a patient is, you can put on PPE because the moment you injure yourself, if you look at it from a, just a resource utilization standpoint, right? You injure yourself bad enough because you have PPE that you're out for any period of time. Well, in that period of time, a patient come in that you can't attend to. Like there's not only the harm to yourself, but harm to the rest of the night patients coming in. There is no scenario where PPE is not mandatory. Absolutely. I think those are all really, really excellent points. Um, Okay. Just a couple quick scenarios that might be interesting. You have a young patient shot in the neck with pulsatile bleeding on scene They lose pulse and arrive with CPR for five minutes. Reportedly, they were moving all extremities at the scene prior to losing their pulses. Do you thoracotomy or not? I think you do. But I mean, and the the key part of the thoracotomy here is that, you know, you're augmenting flow to the the brain and the heart, but you also have to hold pressure while you resuscitate. (laughs) (laughs) I would say from my standpoint, you do do it. And I would say, again, these are patients that present he had signs of life and that was five minutes. This was a penetrating extrathoracic injury, which oh. if you look at our guidelines too, we talk about, you know, we conditionally recommend thoracotomy. So you will not be faulted for doing a thoracotomy in this young patient. And what about the patient with a junctional injury to the axilla, thoracotomy or no? Oof, that's a good one too. From my standpoint, the same thing, lost pulses, five minutes. That's a very tricky one, you know, because again, even if you're still doing the thoracotomy, the question is, can you get to that axilla, right? And stop all that hemorrhage, which again, the main thing with the thoracotomy is also the brain and the heart. So yes, if they came in, I would still do the thoracotomy and then I'll figure out my axillary approach. I agree. That's same answer. What about... um? Let's say not axilla, but you think you have a subclavian hit. Move a little more medial. It's a little bit more medial, and they lost pulses in front, and they came into the trauma bay. Again, I mean, we're limited here, man. You know, I know. In the trauma bay, you've got no other choice but thoracotomy. You're not going to do a median stenotomy on that patient, right? And if your exposure is not that great and you need to clamshell for whatever reason to see more, then so by all means, go for it, you know? And again, I still think the main thing is that how do you augment blood flow to the heart and to the brain when they've lost pulses? 
right? You're not just going to do a medical resuscitation, especially for someone with a junctional injury that you cannot put a tourniquet on, you know? And then we can't even talk about Reboas because, you know, Paul says patients and Reboas is a whole different discussion. Yep, I agree. I mean, in, in this situation, perhaps you can put your finger in the hole and, you know, keep them from exsanguinating um, would be the only other thing I'd say. What about further down? Let's say it's a, a groin hit or maybe in the leg ephemeral hit and they come in, they, they've exsanguinated, they're pulseless. Okay, so I'm going to answer that question with a bit of a story. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Listen, keep us honest, by the way, Lauren. So we had a patient that came here. He had multiple GSWs to the five, came into the CTA and the CTA was unremarkable. Okay. This was left groin. So I was worried about common femoral vein injury because quote unquote on the scene, they had like two liters of blood. Came in, he got one on one en route. He was fine. So we got him here. We took him to the scanner did not seem like he had a common femoral vein or arterial injury at the time, right? Brought him upstairs, the guy was doing good. He had been intubated at the outside hospital and prior to extubation, he lost pulses. Same scenario, he lost pulses. Literally had signs of life in front of you and he lost pulses. So what did I do? I went ahead, I opened up his chest. Um, we did cardiac massage, shocked him. I placed a tourniquet back up here, even though sometimes I didn't feel like, you know, we got full control because it was almost a junctional area. Got him back, took him to the operating room and uh, explored him. And he actually had uh, deep femoral vein branches that were bleeding the whole time. So subsequently got with we ligated all of that, got that under control. Once we took him, explored him, took out the, took out the cup, close clamp, ligated everything, got everything under control, closed his chest and he walked away. So the question at our morning report was, and the question of that big M&M was, could he have done this with A, if this was a common femoral vein, a little bit distal, could he have done it with just a tourniquet and CPR, right? Medical, you know, trauma, ACLS, giving blood and continued resuscitation. Could you have done it with putting a Reboa in? Oh, she lost pulses doing a cut down because we did not have an A-line at the time and we did not have a big quarters. So do a cut down while doing a medical ACLS at the time or see, open up his chest and did what I did. And the answer to that question, based on all our consensus in our trauma T-POPs meeting was, we don't know. Just do what you can do, do what you can and, you know, take it from there. And half of the room said to record me and the other half said they would put a tourniquet up and do ACLS, you know. And I still stand by my decision because we all know Reboa, patients that come in pulseless, stay pulseless, right, you know, with the Reboa, period. So that was not it. And so for me it was to augment the blood flow to the brain and the heart. And that's why I did the torcotomy. So the answer to your question, Jeremy and Megan, is yes, I'll do the torcotomy in that patient in your scenario. I have often had the same question where you have somebody, say, with like an extremity injury, a penetrating extremity injury who arrests right in front of you. That patient at that moment in time has PEA. And in theory, if you just gave them blood and stopped them from ble beating or bleeding, they would start to perfuse again. But I don't. I don't know that that's necessarily the right thing to do. Like Ronnie's saying, I think there's people that would say that's the right thing to do, but I think me and most of my partners would open the chest because it's also about the augmentation and the idea that closed, you know, chest compressions, I don't know, you get like 10% of cardiac output. It's just, it's not 
it's not the same. But I have I have had that question multiple times. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. I am so sorry I was late. Patient care, you know. I, we I, were kind of hopeful you were doing a thoracotomy. <laughs> <laughs> the thing so, is, Ronnie, you could have done a thoracotomy in a patient, and they probably would have woken up and thank you for doing that because everyone loves right. you so much. <laughs> you know, thanks, thanks. It's probably the biotin that I take, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think we have so many great points that you guys hit on here. I We're so grateful that you guys took the time to talk with us today and share your experience, your knowledge, your opinions, really, really valuable things. That wraps up another episode of TraumaCast, brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Visit east.org to check out all the great educational and career development resources we have to offer and make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs or interviews. If you're searching for cutting-edge science, professional education, networking, and career development, remember, all you need to do is look to the East.